Father, I just thank you so much for the opportunity that we have now to um, come together, to listen to you, to focus on you, to try and see you more clearly. And Father, I pray that you give us open hearts to listen to you properly, that you be open to your challenge and that you'd be equipping us for the weeks ahead. Amen. So if you've got a Bible, if you could turn to Mark chapter 14, um, that'd be terrific. So um, in the evenings um, at Malden Road, we've been going through the Gospel of Mark. We're up to chapter 14, so we've come quite a way. And we're starting to reach the point where we're properly... um, we're properly into the kind of the climax of um, the book that Mark's been writing about Jesus. I mean, at the start of Mark's gospel, um, you've got all kinds of flurry of activity. You've got Jesus healing people, um, um, speaking to people, driving out demons, performing miracles, um, teaching remarkable things. And then now we're in Jerusalem. Everything has slowed down over the last couple of chapters and the chapters following this. Um, Mark really slows things down and he wants us to kind of really zoom in on... Um, the last few days of Jesus' life. And themes that have been raised throughout the Gospel, so that's themes of kind of misunderstanding, discipleship, power, conflict, identity, authority, kingship, suffering, they all come together in these um, last final chapters. And from the very first chapter in Mark, um, we've seen that Mark is really clear to emphasise who Jesus is. Um, this is the anointed Messiah, and this is the anointed Messiah who is heading to a, towards a particular place heading towards a particular event. And in this chapter, in chapter 14, we're getting very, 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 very close to that event. Now, a couple of years ago, when I was in Exeter, and actually this story involves another person as well, Lucy, you were there as well, um, we had some friends down, and um, we decided to go to the cinema, because I think we can work out what else to do. It's quite antisocial going to the cinema, isn't it, when you've got friends down? Because you just sit in a dark room, just listening to it. And um, we turned up quite late, and... And it takes a while getting all the tickets because you're in one of those long queues, isn't it? And we also decided to get, I think we got an awful amount, like loads of food as well, because the cinema costs a lot, doesn't it? So if you're going to spend a lot of the cinema, you might as well spend all the money on popcorn. And I, I remember I had a really big tub of ice cream. And then we went into cinema, and it's one of those awkward things where it's, it's very clear that the sound that you're hearing is not just that the adverts have started, like the film has actually started. And we went in, and it was, it was really, really, really crowded, and it was, there's loads of people and the kind of like you had to really look carefully where your seat was. And then you just see lots of kind of judgmental faces, don't you? Like the film started and they're tutting. Um, and also where we were sitting, there was quite a few of us. We had to like properly make people stand up as well, like kind of walking along it. Um, and then I remember my particular seat, the person next to me, had they put all their coats there, like from like this four or five in the row, they put all their coats there. It was quite a good thing to see. And then they had to like take them off one at a time. And I sat down, I had my big tub of ice cream. And we looked up, and it, it seems to be it's a confusing part of the film, because we thought it just started, but there seemed to be quite a lot of tension like, at the start of the film. Like, I mean, some films start with a bang. Maybe I didn't think we were that late. I thought we were about five minutes late. And it's some of the main characters. I'm not going to tell you what film it is, because that's embarrassing. Um, <laughs> it's one of the films you could kind of guess what's going to happen. And then they're, they're talking really intensely. Um, they have this big conversation. Some stuff happens. And then the credits roll. And I remember the lights were coming up and I had my tub of ice cream and I was like, that. And then it kind of, I got why everyone else was so annoyed, like particularly annoyed. And um, they'd just shown us into the wrong screening because I think there have been two screenings of Die Hard 4.0. And um, they'd shown us into the wrong one. And I'm, uh, luckily we got our money back and we got to see it for free like later. But, and it didn't really 
particularly ruined Die Hard 4.0. Um, but it, did, it was a weird experience when we watched it like an hour or so later where we kind of knew where it was heading. Like it had already been spoiled. We already knew what was going to happen and which character was going to survive. And I think the danger sometimes when we approach passages like this one, we, we know where it's heading, don't we? Um, we've had the kind of story, story ruined. Well, we know what's going to happen here. And when we read a passage like this, and particularly ones like this that are very familiar, we hear a, said a lot of times, and you'll see that in a second, um, it's very easy for like the drama and the tension of a story just to be completely lost. Um, I mean, Die Hard 4.0 wasn't ruined that much. But I think when we're reading Mark 14, it's really, really important um, that we're trying to keep the context, the drama, where the story is at to in mind. So here are some things we're at. We're in Jerusalem. So Jesus has already made several references to what is going to happen to him there. Um, he's entered the city as a king on a donkey or a colt. And he's been teaching and prophesying there in the city and in the temple. And it's the heart of the Jewish festival Pesach or Passover. And Jerusalem would have been heaving with people. So try and get that context in your minds. And in the previous passage, what we looked at last week with Charlie, we saw that Jesus has just been anointed with really, really expensive perfume, um, which he explained the significance of, um, that he is bound for burial. And we also saw how Judas, one of the disciples, has agreed to betray him for money. So we're at quite a, you know, it's quite a tense moment in this book, in this story about Jesus. We seem to be very close to the end and we're definitely heading towards something. So as we read 14, 12 to 26 of the verses that we're going to look at tonight, um, try and keep those thoughts in mind. So chapter 14 in Mark, 12 to 26. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples to telling them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters, the teacher asks, where is my guest room, where I, I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as, they, and just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely not I. It is one of the twelve, he replied. One who dips bread into the bowl with me, the Son of Man will go, just as it is written about him. But woe to the man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it. This is my body. Then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it in the new kingdom of God. When they had sung a song, they went out to the Mount of Olives. It's quite a short story. Um, it's quite a simple story. I'm guessing for many of us it's quite a familiar story. Essentially, the basic plot is some people trying to find a place for a meal, eating a meal, and talking over that meal. But there is a lot going on in here. Um, when this meal takes place is significant. Where this meal takes place is significant. What is said at the meal is significant. And what the meal represents is significant. And again, I think we really see in this chapter we are heading towards something, aren't we? We're heading towards something. 
And I think to help us think through this little short story, um, and actually it helps us think through any story in Mark, it's worth asking ourselves two questions. Um, firstly, who is, who is Jesus? When we look through Mark, um, he's presenting Jesus as, um, as the Messiah we saw in chapter 1. What do we learn about him in this chapter? And then we're also going to think about what should our response be to this. So the first question, um, how does Mark present Jesus in this passage? Well, throughout this short section, I mean, throughout these verses 12 to 26, we see that Jesus is completely in control. That's the first thing we see about Jesus here. Um, He's not just a passive victim of circumstances in this story. Um, He is in control over the small details and the large events that are going to happen. Um, In verse 12, when his disciples ask him where they will eat the Passover, it is clear that Jesus has a plan. It's clear that Jesus has a plan. It's very similar to a story about how they found him, the donkey in which he entered Jerusalem in, and he gives the disciples very specific instructions. And in verse 16, we see they find things exactly as Jesus had told him. Now, there could be two explanations of this. I mean, the first one is Jesus has exceptional supernatural foreknowledge of what was going to happen, um, where that person will be at that exact same time, um, to prepare this room, this fully furnished room at a really, really busy Passover time in Jerusalem, which would have been overcrowded. Um, given what we know about Jesus throughout the Gospels and the kind of miracles he's done, that wouldn't be the most impressive miracle that he has done. Um, that would suit his character. Or he's just super organised. Maybe he's got followers that he's already prearranged um, with to, like, to lend him the room and wait with, uh, have a servant waiting with a water jug there. Um, Either way, and I think it could be potentially a combination of two, what Mark is emphasising here is that Jesus is in control of his destiny. I mean, Jesus is setting his path into um, motion. What will happen later is not a catastrophe or something unexpected. Um, Jesus is decisively heading towards something. Um, In verse 18, it also makes it clear that Jesus is also not unaware of the things that are going on. He's not unaware of the, the end of the passage last week. He knows that someone is going to betray him. He knows he's going to be betrayed. The ultimate trial, he's going to be betrayed and be mocked and suffer and he's ultimately going to be killed. Jesus is aware of that. He makes decisions um, that keep him in that direction. Even though he knows he's going to be betrayed, he knows what it means to be in Jerusalem. And again, we see that in the words that he says when he takes the bread and the wine. We're going to look at those words in more detail in a moment. Um, But it's clear later in this passage as well, Jesus is crystal clear about what is going to happen to him. There are no accidents here, um, and that's a really clear emphasis throughout this passage, kind of step by step, where they're going to eat, um, how he's going to be betrayed, and his explanations of what he's going to go through. Everything is decisive. I mean, going back to what I said at the start then, like trying not to lose the drama of the story, um, I mean, that's significant, isn't it? that Jesus knows what he's about to go through. I mean, we know what he's going to go through. But Jesus knows what he's going to go through, and he's still setting out to do it. Think of, I mean, some of the toughest moments in our lives, um, some of the difficult things that we might have been through. I I met up with a friend this weekend who, um, he got bitten by a mosquito in um, Zimbabwe, and it nearly killed him. Um, His glands swelled up, he had to have chemotherapy, it was horrible. If he knew that he could have stopped that, I mean, he would definitely have stopped it. Um, any of the tough moments in our life, if we know we could do something to change it, I mean, we would change it. And, I mean, Mark shows how committed Jesus is here, doesn't he? I mean, committed is maybe not the right word. He shows how determined Jesus is in what he needs to do. Um, he's in control. It's not an accident. Um, 
But I don't think it's kind of in a cold and calculated, like Jesus just going through it in a, oh, I'm going to die, that's kind of stoic. I mean, this is, he's completely in control. Um, but, I mean, that's the second thing we see about Jesus in this passage. This is someone who is deeply, deeply compassionate about people. He has a deep compassion for us. I mean, there is a clear purpose to this point that Jesus is heading to. And, I mean, to help us see that, the context of Passover is key. This time of year is absolutely key. Um, if we could all turn back to Exodus, chapter, um, Exodus 12. Um, we're not going to read the whole of it. Um, we'll get an indication. Exodus 12. Of what Jesus is talking about. So in Exodus 12, we could find the whole description of the Passover. Um, it would give us a good summary of it. But there's a nice summary at the end when Israelites are told what they should say to others um, when people ask them what the ceremony is all about. So in verse 26 of Exodus chapter 12, you see this. When your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them this. It is the Passover sacrifice of the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down and worshipped. The Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. Passover then, um, and not to go into all the little details of it, it's about salvation. It's about freedom. Um, it's about clearly remembering that the Lord has saved his people. And for the Jewish people, um, I mean, this festival is a deeply political act. You think of all the centuries of Jewish suffering and oppression, this Passover meal pointed to their true identity. It says loud and clear that despite appearances, um, we are God's free people. Despite appearances, we are God's free people. And um, I know this too, um, too well from teaching our um, Year 8 RE lessons, where Passover is quite a fun lesson to do because you get lots of things out and get them to do colourful worksheets and things like that. Um, but there is so much tradition in this mill. There's so much imagery and there's so much, so much that God wants to teach us through it. And um, you can see examples of that in when people celebrate um, Pesach. They have the four questions they will ask at points during the meal that the youngest child at the meal will ask. And all of those four questions are basically... Why is this night different from other nights? Why are we having bread that's unleavened? Why are we having herbs that are extra bitter? And it's all helping them to remember how God has saved them um, in Egypt. Um, it's a really significant story. So for the disciples at this meal, or for Jewish um, readers, um, they would expect something to happen during this Passover meal. Um, so what Jesus does next um, is out of the ordinary. It's shocking. I mean, it's not shocking for us, because this is when we, we read the Last Supper. This is what we expect here. But this is different. Let's read it again. Mark 14, 22-25. Um, back in Mark. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave to the disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Um, then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly I tell you, I will not drink... Um, again, of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it in the new kingdom of God. These would have been striking words for those um, hearing this passage, um, hearing these words for the first time, for those reading this passage for the first time. And it would have brought up lots of imagery of the things that um, they would have heard before, actually, throughout the Old Testament. And I've asked a couple of people, I've given some people verses around this room. So I think we've got, Emily, um, you've got Leviticus, um, Jamie, you've got a verse in Exodus, and Pat, you've got a verse in Jeremiah. Um, 
Some of these verses, um, I'm doing it this way so we don't have to flick around all the time. Um, some of these verses would have definitely come to mind when Jesus was um, um, doing the Last Supper. So firstly, in Leviticus 17, 10-12, um, we hear these words. Yeah. So if they knew the Jewish law well, which lots of them would know, the first thing they would know is blood is precious. I mean, in some ways, this is an offensive passage because it's asking them to effectively imagine they're eating blood, drinking blood. Um, The Jewish law says it's precious and it's significant in their salvation. The next verse that we're going to listen to as well um, is Exodus 24, uh, verse 8. Um, where it talks about blood in the promises that God has made to his people and the promises of his new covenant, uh, his covenant on Mount Sinai. He says this. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made for you in accordance with all these words. Brilliant. Blood there speaks of promise. It speaks of a new covenant. It speaks of the promise God has made to his chosen people that he has brought out of Egypt and that he has saved and rescued links to the promises of God. And then there's another word significant in this passage as well, which is covenant, um, which these verses from Jeremiah, which um, Pat's just going to read to you now from chapter 31. Say. These are covenants, says the Lord, and I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel So in his words and his actions here, Jesus is giving an an entirely different meaning to this Passover meal. I mean, they were expecting maybe the four questions to eat the food in a certain way. And what Jesus does here is actually fully explain what that Passover, that original Passover was all about, and use Passover to explain what is going to happen to him. How his, the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for the many. So as Jesus meets with his friends for the Last Supper up in the upper room, and tells them to see the bread and wine as his body and as his blood, he's effectively asking them to see him as the Passover lamb. Um, It is through his blood that they will now be saved, his sacrifice, his body as a sin offering, his his body as an atonement. He is going to accomplish a greater exodus than what they were celebrating what they'd seen before. No longer the blood of an animal, um, but his precious blood. Again, Jesus is in control. This is where he's heading. And I think this passage reveals so much of Jesus' character here. Um, He is decisively heading on this path, but this is a path in which involves such compassion. It's his blood poured out for the many. This is why he's doing it. And notice his attitude as he gives out the bread and wine. Um, He gives thanks, doesn't he? 
This is a thankful meal. This is something, he's going to go through this pain and suffering. He's going to this dark, dark place, that dark, dark day. He's giving his body and his blood, yet he is giving thanks for this. And he's giving thanks in the context of betrayal. I mean, we see in this in these verses, kind of leading on from the beginning of chapter 14, um, that Jesus knows he's going to be betrayed by one of his closest disciples. He's betrayed in, in a, I mean, a darkly ironic way by someone who's going to dip their hand in, in, the, in the bowl with him at the same time. You know, a sign of cleansing is turning into an act of betrayal. And Jesus emphasises the severity of Jesus' actions here by claiming it would be better for him if you're not being born. But I think Mark is really keen not just to set Judas up here. Um, it's not just Judas that he kind of shows compassion on. We're all at fault here. Notice that when he says he's going to be betrayed, every single one of the disciples asks the same question. And imagine, again, we can miss the drama of that. That's, that's 12 disciples going around in circles saying, surely not I, surely not I, surely not I. And I think the fact that the narrative says that, it kind of asks us to ask that same question ourselves. I mean, it's also striking, you think, this meal, this meal in which he talks about his body and his blood, either side of it are examples of real human weakness, aren't they? On the one side, you've got Judas, who's prepared to hand Jesus over for money, I mean, the ultimate betrayal, and the other disciples doubting how they might have um, betrayed him as well in many ways. And then next week, we will see Jesus predicting that all the disciples are going to fall away. Um, and then you have Peter making that faithful promise, don't we, that he won't. I mean, as we've seen throughout Mark, the disciples are weak, they make mistakes, they ask silly questions, and they find it really, really difficult to see who Jesus is and actually where the story is going. And this isn't because they're pantomime buffoons, even though it's funny when you see those make mistakes again and again. It's because they're human, aren't they? Um, these are the types of mistakes we would make. We do make, don't we? We find it hard to see who Jesus is. We forget who he is. We forget what he's done for us and doing for us. Um, it's very real, isn't it? And it's in this context that Jesus is pouring out his blood for them and for us. I mean, he decisively heads to Jerusalem. He heads to Passover. He heads to his death, fully in control, prepared to die for the many, as a ransom, despite our faithlessness. I mean, that is compassion. Um, that is the love that Jesus has for us here. So... Um, what is our response then to a passage like that? Um, I mean, a really familiar passage when we've got a really clear picture of Jesus and lots of different things that have come up through Mark, um, coming up again. And I think for readers of Mark, I mean, the original readers of Mark, um, many who were suffering Christians, facing persecution, all around kind of the known world at the time, to see who Jesus is here, to see what he will achieve, um, this would have been deeply comforting, a little passage like this. This has brought them real, real comfort. Jesus is presented here as in control, as deeply compassionate, the lamb that was slain, and I think a real encounter with that lamb, a real encounter with Jesus, seeing him for who he is, seeing his heart, seeing that he's done this willfully, I think that changes people. It changes people in many different ways. I mean, there's lots of practical applications we could talk about here. And there are also lots of practical applications. I mean, we're reminded about our own frailty and weakness that we can so often miss the point. We can so often fail to listen to him properly and to follow him properly. But as, as I close kind of our talk tonight, we're going to focus on one particular aspect of um, application. And it's, we're going to have a chance to worship, which is what they do in verse 26. We see they sing a song. We're going to have a chance to sing songs. Um, 
But I think it's also really important to think about, I mean, this first meal, this first meal that Jesus has initiated here, this new Passover that we're called Celebrate, and we're going to celebrate it in a moment. And I guess for someone coming to church for the first time, I mean, communion is bizarre, isn't it? It's weird. <laughs> it's really weird. I mean, originally, the Romans thought it was bizarre because, I mean, they thought the Christians were cannibals by talking about how we eat the flesh of Jesus and we have his blood. I mean, it sounds bizarre. The words are strange, aren't they? I was talking to a friend in Bristol earlier today, and it's just a strange thing. He'd never really thought about it before. And also, I mean, every church has their own weird traditions of it as well. Um, we don't know what communion was maybe originally like back then, and, but I can tell you what, it's not like this. Um, uh, with this. Yeah. I remember when I was younger, I was just terrified in communion, just because, especially when you go to a new church, you just know what's going to happen, do you? Um, and it's gonna, and it's, you're always scared of dropping it. And I've never seen anyone drop it. So I, I, I imagine it must have happened because it's such a small handle. Um, but it can be quite, have you dropped it? Well done, <laughs> um, But it can become quite a, it can become quite a solemn and sometimes quite a mystical thing, can't it, communion? Where I remember when I was growing up, it's also, I, I knew I was a Christian now because I was allowed to take communion. And because I was Christian, they let me take communion. I was kind of, it's kind of a brethren church. And, it can be quite a, it can be quite a, yeah, I think sometimes we can miss the true meaning of it. And for the early church and what we see in these passages in Acts, I mean, the Lord's Supper is crucial. It's key. It's something they hold of the utmost importance. And I think if we want to really understand and to be really nourished by what's happening at the cross, I mean, this meal is the place to start. The Lord's Supper, I mean, is several things, isn't it? The Lord's Supper is several things. It's a remembrance. It helps us to helps remind us of the story in which I mean we're heading towards in Mark's Gospel and stories like we've heard tonight. It reminds us of what Jesus is like. It reminds us of, of his plan to save us. I mean, it, it connects us practically and directly to that story, that good news. Um, just as the Passover said loud and clear to Jews that they've been saved, I mean, communion does the same to us today. It says, despite appearances. We are God's free people. Um, everyone is equal before this table, um, if we've trusted in Jesus. Secondly, it's an anticipation as well. I mean, there's some interesting verses in 25, in verse 25 in the chapter, where Jesus states that at the Last Supper he would not eat the Passover or drink its wine until its fulfilment. And I think he's, he's pointing towards a greater meal, isn't he? He's pointing towards when his return, um, that great messianic banquet that we were all going to share where there's no more pain, no more suffering. And communion's an anticipation of that. We see that in these verses. It's also a covenant meal. A meal that affirms our faith. Um, the faith, the, those steps of commitment. When we have trusted in Jesus as our Lord and Saviour, what he achieves for us on the cross, it reminds us of that commitment. It reminds us of the covenant that God has made with us and how we respond to that. And that's why it's a significant action. That's why in Corinthians, when we see Paul having a go at believers there for kind of making a mockery of communion by getting drunk and being overjoyous, that's why it is quite a solemn meal sometimes. It's a serious thing. It reminds us of the commitment that we've made and the covenant that's been made to us. Um, it's also about fellowship. I mean, there are different arguments about this, but I mean, many people would reckon that communion would have started in the context of an actual meal. Um, and I mean, we've had some toasties, haven't we, before? But, um, and it's kind of been divorced from that in lots of different churches. But one of the great things about communion, it obliges us to 
look at each other. I, I love the way we do celebrate communion here, where we all drink wine at the same time. I think that's, it reminds us of our unity. Um, it obliges us to see each other as loved by God. I mean, if you've got an issue with someone else in this room, this meal reminds us that God doesn't. Like, he sees Jesus. His blood has paid for them. Um, and I think that's why it's a real, real shame. As someone, I, I teach a bit of philosophy and theology at school. It's a shame that this meal is often a meal of division between churches. And when it's such a meal of unity, it's a shame. It's also, um, it's an act of thanksgiving. I mean, that's the phrase that Jesus used. He gives thanks several times. Sometimes different traditions call it Eucharist. Eucharist comes from the Greek word meaning thanksgiving. Um, this is something that we should be really, really thankful and joyful for. It's a solemn thing, but it's something that we should be generally excited for. And I think the word Eucharist maybe is fitting as a, as a thing of thanks. This, and this meal makes no sense, does it? Um, without ultimately looking towards the resurrection. This is a thanksgiving meal because we know it's not just a memorial in which we think about someone who died and stayed dead. This is about someone who defeated death and gives us the same opportunity. This is a meal of thanksgiving. It's about remembrance, anticipation, fellowship, commitment, thanksgiving. And I think around the table, and we will have a chance to celebrate this after we've sung some songs in a moment, um, we see the whole gospel played out in our midst, don't we? It's such a practical reminder and... It reminds us, I think it's, it reminds us what the church is meant to be. This is, I mean, the church is at this table um, when we think about what Jesus has done for us. So I'm going to close on those thoughts and um, pray. Um, Paddy's going to come and lead us with some music um, as well as Jamie. And then um, Dan's going to lead us in communion later. But can I just ask for just a minute, maybe with these verses still out in front of you, I'd ask you just to look at these verses again and think about who Jesus is. And look at these verses again and think about what our response is in following him. And then I'll pray and then we'll sing. Father, we thank you for your son Jesus that he willingly died for us and that we see that so clearly in this passage. Um, Father, we thank you for your great grace for us that um, you have saved us through your own blood, not through our own merit, but um, just as you provided a Passover lamb for the Israelites back in Exodus, I thank you that you have provided your son now for us on the cross and we praise you for that. Um, We thank you for that. I pray for... um, Yeah, thankful hearts that we would really, really see you clearly, Father. That, yeah, you'd help us really see clearly the story um, as truth, as historical truth. And you'd bless us as um, we enjoy this meal that you initiated back in this chapter um, in a moment. Amen.